0: Welcome to the Everything Early Childhood podcast designed for approved providers, nominated supervisors, and other childcare leaders. This fun, lighthearted, and very serious podcast features weekly episodes on strategy, advice, and conversations with fascinating and inspiring people from across our sector. Join the journey and have access to the tools and inspiration you need to create high-performing childcare businesses. Let's get started. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Everything Early Childhood. I am so excited to be here with you today on this amazing day, whatever day you're listening to this, in your car, walking down the street. I am here with you today to just share a little bit of knowledge I have been extremely lucky in my career to do some pretty amazing things. And I wanted to, it's just been coming up for me a lot lately and I just wanted to come on and just share a little bit about one of the special moments that I've had in my career. And that is to actually travel to Japan and um, see some early learning services um, over there At first, um, I was a little bit nervous. Um, I... Had, we, we, we travel a lot. We travel around. Um, I really love the US. New York is our favorite, favorite place. And fun fact, um, my husband and I actually eloped and got married in New York. So it's a really special place for us. So we generally were going there um, every two years. Uh, we've been to Italy, Croatia, Spain. Um, we've been to Hong Kong. And my experience in Hong Kong was interesting. It was the first country that I went to that didn't have a massive population that spoke English. So it was the first time that I was able to really see what it's like to be in a country where you you don't fit in, you don't speak the language, um, and you look well and truly out of place. Um, so As you can imagine, the offer was extended. I was helping one of my clients. Um, They have had 15 centers in Japan. They're growing now. And this was all the way back in 2017. And I was supporting them to open their service in Australia. Now, I was a little bit nervous about going back to a country um, without, you know, that didn't speak English. And um, I was also very nervous about the food. I was like, I can't go over there and eat raw fish. Um, I mean, I eat sushi, but I eat like what I was told over there is the kid version of sushi. So I love my almost like California rolls. So my chicken, katsu with um, cucumber or avocado. They're my favorite. But I... Everyone was like, "Go, go, go." So, I took the opportunity, went over there, went over there on my own, so I traveled to Tokyo. And from Tokyo, I had to get on a another plane, so I rushed from Tokyo to the airport and I had to catch another plane all the way up to the top of Japan. And then I had to get on a train. Now, none of the stations are in English. So I remember the journey and the travel and just really trying to seek out and and see sought out people that spoke English. Now in Tokyo, it wasn't so bad. There, I ran into this beautiful woman. Um, she actually took me under her wing and um, told me all about the sights in Tokyo and she was a nanny. So she was nannying this little girl with her and she spoke English very well and we bonded um, over our love for educating and caring for children Um, So that was amazing. When I got up to the top of Japan, I arrived, um, I got off the train and um, the station was actually in this big, massive shopping center complex. And I remember standing in the middle of the shopping center with my suitcase and looking around. um, I obviously had the address of where the hotel and where I was supposed to be going, but I had absolutely no idea where to go, what to do. Um, And I remember looking at my phone because obviously I had my client there, they were meeting me and I looked at my phone and I went to call them to find out um, where do I go and tell them where where I was, could they come and meet me? And I looked at my phone, and for some reason, um, the roaming it wasn't turned on properly. So I, I didn't have roaming. I couldn't call anyone. I didn't have any Wi-Fi because my roaming wasn't working. So I'm standing there in the middle of this shopping center. On one side is like a university and on the other side is the street. So at first I walked out to the street and I asked, I saw a police officer and they were directing traffic. And so I went up to them and I said, hello, hello, excuse me, can you tell me where this is? And I'm pointing to where I had to go. And to my surprise, he turned around and he's like, no English, no English. I was like, Oh no. So I had, I went back to the shops cause I thought that was a good starting point just in case I had to walk the opposite way. And so I'm standing there, all these people are rushing by me, rushing by me um, on both sides. And I literally, balled my eyes out. Like I was crying in the middle of the shopping centre because I was freaking out about not knowing where to go, not knowing where to do, uh, what to do, where to go. Um, I couldn't ask anyone because no one spoke English. And I'm sure that in everyone's life, they can relate to some type of situation where they have just felt completely lost. Like I was in a foreign country. I was on my own. What was I going to do? Um, and then, um, I just like, Lisa, get your SHIT together. You have money, you have a card, worst case scenario. You just go book yourself into a hotel and, um, work it out in the morning. And luckily when I sort of like flick that switch and I'm like, you've got this, it's fine. Um, I realized that, all, all I needed to do was find a Starbucks. I'm like, who has Wi-Fi? Where can I get Wi-Fi? And luckily there was a Starbucks in the shopping center, um, not far from there. So I went to the Starbucks, I called my client and I'm like, can you come and find me? Because I have no idea where I'm going. And they came and got me and we ended up going to the hotel. So that is how my trip to Japan started. Um, a little adventure and I always refer back to that moment in any time that I feel lost or confused or just a bit stuck because it really taught me that we have all the tools that we need to get through each day and to get through life. So I'm really grateful for that moment. But I don't I didn't come on today to share I'm sure I'll have different stories throughout this episode of my journey there but what I wanted to do I wanted to share with you what early childhood education is like in Japan So what they explained to me is typically the Japanese culture was for children to do as they were told. There was no space for exploration, curiosity or discovery. It was very teacher-led and that's what I observed through um, my experience in the services. I remember going to each service and seeing. So their ratios, for example, um, the inference is very similar to ours. So that's one to four. Um, The toddler ratio is one to eight. So that's our old ratio that we used to have. So that was okay. I'd used to seeing, um, you know, one to eight children in a space. However, the three, four and five-year-old ratio was one educator to 30 children. So when we went into those spaces, it was so weird, like so bizarre to see one educator with 30 children in one space. And I can actually see why, you know, being teacher led is so important because when you have one educator to 30 children, and if you had every single child using their curiosity, wanting to do different things... Um, it would be very, very challenging to be able to navigate through that situation with each individual child. So that was really interesting. What else is interesting about their system is that they've got two types, similar to here, sort of. They've got like a preschool, um, which is your three to fives, and that's formalized like pre-kindergarten preschool. And then they've got childcare. Now in Japan, they were always separate. They get different government funding, all the funding works differently for both. So my client was the first company in Japan to integrate preschool and childcare into the one building. And they were really, really proud of that. So when I visited centres, their their quietest centre had 150 children (laughs) And then their busiest center, I think it was about 350, 400 children. It was crazy. And they were huge, massive buildings. Like like you'd walk up and it was some huge, massive building, um, almost like a university. But I remember walking around and it It never, ever felt in any of the services that there were that many children. Um, There were beautiful um, like doors and corridors that sort of blocked off um, the baby sections when they were sleeping and you didn't really hear a lot of noise. It wasn't noisy. It was like, and it was just, it was quiet. It was peaceful. Um, Everyone knew what was happening and it was just calm and relaxed, which was really beautiful. And I think what stood out for me, particularly in the baby's rooms, were um, the level of communication. So every single child there got this little um, little note and on the little note would have a full rundown of the child's day, their routine, um, and also just a note, like a letter to each of their families, just letting them know about what they learned from the day. Um, obviously everything was in Japanese. Um, so all, every, all the documentation was all in Japanese. Um, I think I learned two, two, um, two things in Japanese, um, when I was there, two phrases, um, I, that got me by like, konnichiwa, <laughs> um, hello, um, and arigato gozaimasu, which is, um, thank you very much. Um, so yeah, every day I was like, konnichiwa. And then, ah, oh, they're like, you speak Japanese. I'm like, no. <laughs> Um so yeah it was it was a very beautiful and interesting trip. But so over there the government works a little bit differently. So what happens is the families don't actually enroll directly with the services what happens is that every family actually registers with the government and then the government places each family at services. So could you imagine not having to do any marketing for your centres and for the government just to fill up all of the centres in the area based on um, them sending families to you? Isn't that crazy? Um, But the families can actually make a choice so they can say oh we would prefer this service but then the government decides where to send that child um so it's sort of it's I mean uh, to reflect on that a little bit it, you know the family then obviously doesn't get that decision about where to send their child that decision is made for them and, but at the same time, because the government send the children evenly to all of these centres and they're all full, what happens is that the government also highly regulate the fees and they control the fees that are charged um, by the service to the families as well. So something that blew me away during my trip there was The level and the quality of architecture, I don't know what I was expecting but I have a massive love for architecture, design. Um, I'm a really visual person, aesthetic person. So I love textures. Um, My favorite thing of all time in architecture and I know that it's weird, are doors. Like you think that there's just doors, right? And people just use doors, they just open them. But if you actually look into it, there are so many different kinds of doors. And at these services in Japan, they actually designed their own doors. So they had these beautiful solid wood doors that they had cut out in um, these circle windows inside the door so that they could see um, children on the other side and so children could see out. But the way that they designed their buildings was so thoughtful and intelligent and the children were definitely at the centre of everything. So some my favourite building, because obviously we went to a, a lot of their centres, so my favourite one was this warehouse, right? It was this square warehouse. Um, as you walk up to it, it's, it's quite daunting. It's just this big metal square box. As we walked in, you're met um, in the foyer, um, at in the Japanese centres um, as well, you need to take off your shoes, um, which I always forgot. So they provided you with slippers. Um, so they've got, and the children also had indoor shoes, outdoor shoes, and bathroom shoes. So it was <laughs> it was really confusing to remember to make sure that I one took off my shoes when I entered. Two, when I went outside, I had to put on my other shoes. So sometimes I had to carry them around with me. And then the third thing, if I went to the bathroom, I couldn't wear either of those shoes. So they actually provided like almost like Crocs and even the children had like little Crocs that they put on to go to the bathroom because they saw that, that was they felt that was an unhygienic space. So um, they, yeah, they provide different bathroom shoes. And that was a sign of respect. So when we arrived to this big warehouse center, the first thing I noticed was that um, I was like, oh, is this a childcare center? And they were like, yes. Oh, okay. So in the front, all there was, was just like grass, a pathway. And um, like, I remember there being almost like black sand pit. Um, So it was like a sand pit with black sand And I think in Australia, we we take for granted how lucky we are to have such beautiful sand and beaches and nature. Um, So I was a bit taken back that it was this um, dark sand. And as we entered, we walked in and there was this beautiful little hut. So it was like a little hut inside this building Um, that's where we took our shoes off. And then as we walked into the left was this staircase. So we walked up this staircase first, um, and it was like this big platform office, like circular space. Um, and that was the, um, directors and administration office. And what they could do, they could actually see the entire center from the top. So they looked down and they could see everyone in their little spaces. And then um, we come back down the stairs and then we walked actually downstairs and there was this like viewing space with all these windows and it was just this beautiful, warm, engaging space that the children could just go into in a small group. And they explained that when families come in to visit the centre, they can actually go in there to have little meetings and it had, you know, different experiences for the children to do while they were having a meeting with the family. And then, um, we walked up and then as we walked around, like you can, you got to imagine this is a square box and somehow so beautifully, they turned this square box into a circular space indoors. So it was a big, um, circular, um, you walked around to the rooms in a circle and then in the center, You walk up these stairs again, and there's a viewing platform. So you can stand at the top of the viewing platform and look down. And what was so beautiful is in their nursery, rather than having, because there were no sort of roofs over the rooms, it was open um, all the way to the roof of the warehouse. So it was very spacious. And when you look down into the nursery room, they had more little like more little cottages, like little village um, inside the room, two other little villages, which were like the bathroom and the nappy change because they didn't want them out in the open and they needed to creatively think how they were going to design it so that they could be private. And in each room had one for their bathroom and it was just clever. It was beautiful and the finishes the textures the um materials um and the doors oh my gosh they had half doors with full glass they had full doors with like circles they were incredible so that was my favourite centre and, I mean, but every single centre was so different. I remember walking into another centre and it was um, a U-shaped centre and um, the the outdoor space was in the middle of the centre um, so all rooms could access it from their space. But even the beams, the roof, the shape of the windows so they had these beautiful, um, like, triangle viewing windows through each of the classrooms and this that particular center the u-shaped one was so scandinavian like so much wood everywhere it was it was just beautiful and where the beams met they went into like a y-shaped all the like up and then into a y all the way up to the ceiling and the ceiling heights were incredible so I could go on about architecture all day. I love it. Um, I love designing spaces. I love looking at spaces. I love seeing them come from start to fruition um, and, and designing and being part of that space. But what was also interesting, I asked them about their outdoor spaces and I said, because um, I noticed that there weren't there weren't any resources, um, there weren't any plants. It was just pure grass. And what was explained to me was that in Japan, they don't put a lot of effort into their outdoor spaces. Purely because their weather is so adverse. So it's either really hot in summer or snowing in winter. So it's really hard to, for things to be sustainable out there and for things to last. So that wasn't something where they put all of their energy. We're at one of the biggest centres. Um, it was huge. And we were walking around the centre. And then as we were leaving, I, I couldn't see any kids anymore. And I was like where are all the children? And they explained that part of the government requirements in Japan is one, that it needs to be located near a park, a public park. So what happens is that they put all of the children into these like carts to describe the carts they were like you know in a hotel and in the movies in hotels how you see them put all the um towels and the sheets and stuff in these big laundry carts that's like sort of what they were and they put these the children in the carts and they wheeled them to the park so all the children um by 11 a.m ended up at the park at the public park which makes sense to explore the community um and to go to the park and use those public resources And another one of the council or government requirements in Japan is to have a hall. So, and you can imagine the enormity of the space when um, every single service had a hall, like a stage and a big auditorium um, for the children. So every week they would have like a gathering, an assembly, um, and they would also have festivals So they would have different kinds of festivals, sports festival, um, yeah, all these art festivals, all these different festivals throughout the year. And I remember that when I was at one of the services, they were actually having a gathering and it was amazing. They were learning about road safety and it was all the classes together in this auditorium. Um, On the stage was this lady. It was all in Japanese, but even I was entertained. Um, And she was singing these songs and doing these dances and and using all of these props um, to teach the children about road safety. So it was a really great space for everyone to come together and um, really collaborate, converse and learn these skills and have obviously a visitor into the service um, to teach these skills for the children as well. One of the resources that really caught my attention, so the indoor environments in the services were quite sparse, very clean, very um, spacious. Um, As you can imagine, beautiful bamboo flooring. Um, And what I noticed is a lot of the experiences were pushed to the sides of the rooms and they utilized that big space in the middle um, the, as I said, the resource that caught my attention was called, and there was boxes and boxes and boxes of it, like lining the hallways and the rooms. And I'm like, what is that? And it's literally like these planks of wood, um, not even long. Like I would say probably about 15 centimeters long, um, and like less than a centimeter wide, um, or deep, whatever. Um, and, I was like, what is that? And I saw the children making these amazing creations. Like, oh, I I can't even describe to you what they were making. They were making these buildings and then they were making these marble runs. And then like it was just incredible like what they were building out of this material. And I said, what is that? And she's like, that's Kapla." And as if I should already know what it is. And yeah, so when I came back, I looked it up and it was something that we integrated into our service for our children and they um, took a little while. We looked at a lot of different inspiration, different photos, different things of what we could build out of it. But after a while, yeah, it was amazing to see what the children could create. The food. So I was really nervous to go to Japan for the food. And I remember this one time, like after hours, um, I went to, um, so all their shops, because it gets so cold or so hot there, a lot of their shops are underground. So you go underground and that's where their train stations are as well. So I went underground and there's this beautiful, like just, oh, it was amazing. Like all these shops, all these restaurants, um, and everything there. you wouldn't even know that they're from the top of the street. So I can't even remember how I ended up finding them, but I went underground and there were all these cafes and restaurants, um, and shops. And I remember getting so excited that there was KFC, like I found KFC, but I made sure I got out of my comfort zone and the best thing about Japan is that they have, and Hong Kong, we found it as well, is that they have actual like um, dishes in the windows. Like it's, it's not even a menu. Of course they've got a menu too, but they've got like actual, um, <laughs> the actual food there, like what it looks like. And that's really important to them. So I went up the, the, The best thing um, in Hokkaido. So if you don't know Hokkaido, look it up. It's at the top near Soporto. But um, Hokkaido is the number one destination for sweets. And it's like a fishing district as well. So all the seafood and stuff comes um, from like that region. So up the top in Soporto and Hokkaido. Hokkaido had the most beautiful sweets. Like I got this cream bun and I got this thing. But when I ordered it, the poor lady and I were having this convert, like conversation and she's trying to ask me something. I had no idea what she wanted to ask me. And I'm like, she's, I don't, anyway, all I wanted to do was tell her I want to take away. And I'm using my fingers and my thumbs and I'm like, away, take away. And she's like, oh, I don't know what you're saying. And so, um, I was like box, box away. Anyway, we figured it out and I got back and they were the best things I've ever eaten. But, and the food there was incredible. So amazing. So fresh. Um, for breakfast one day, I actually had a kiwi fruit smoothie. Um, if you've never had one, you have to try it. It was amazing. I've never had one since, but, um, it was awesome and incredible. But in the services, because they're so large, they actually have a full team of chefs that look after the services. So um, I don't know, a lot of you would use um, like Kids Gourmet for catering. It was almost like their commercial kitchen from Kids Gourmet in each of their services. So they had um, in their bigger services, they had up to five chefs um, in their smaller services. They may have had three chefs, but they had a separate space where they do the allergy meals. Um, they had a like, different space. Like one chef was in charge of the allergy meals. Like that was their job. Um, another chef would do like the protein. Another one would do the vegetables and then they would work together to serve it to the children. When the children got their meals in the day, um, same thing here, like so morning tea, lunch and afternoon tea was served, um, but their children actually brought their own cutlery. So they would all have their um, little Hello Kitty, little um, boxes and they would all get it out with their little chopsticks and they would sit down at the tables for mealtime. When the food was um, put on the tables, the children needed to sit and wait. Um, When all the food was out and every child had a bowl, the director of the center was called to each of the classrooms and went around to check that all the children with allergies had the correct food. And it wasn't until the director checked all the food and all the food allergies that the children were able to eat allergies and, um, dietary requirements are taken very seriously, um, in Japan. And, um, so they should, um, so the children then obviously ate their food, um, which was incredible. But every service I went to, there was like, um, I'll post a photo of it. I'll try to describe it, but it was like a display box. And inside the display box in the foyers was actually a dish. So it was um, a plate of each of the meals, exactly how it was served out to the children for the day, um, that the families could see what their children had eaten. I thought that's fascinating. I loved the look of it. I loved to see it. Um, And I thought it was really, really awesome. Um, So... With the children's routines for the day, um, in order to be an educator in and to work in early childhood, you need to have a degree and at least a, grade, a C grade in English, maths and science. But you also need to know how to play the piano. So the piano was, and music was a really important part of the children's day. Um, And you could see as things were changing and as things were moving throughout the day, an educator would get on the piano, um, they would play a tune and then the children automatically knew what that tune meant um, and what to do following that tune. So it was really beautiful to see um, their use of music throughout the day. Um, and how that all, how how that all worked. I remember one distinct memory of walking into a room and there were two educators um, and all the children and they were doing this amazing, beautiful dance, almost like if I was described now, it would be like a TikTok dance, Um, but it was awesome and amazing. And I remember seeing like the smiles on their faces, how happy they were, how much fun they were having. Um, So music was really important to them. Um, and they had a lot of extracurricular things um, that the parents could choose for their children to do. So one of those extracurricular things were piano lessons. Um, so the, so if a parent opted, the child could go and participate in a separate space um, and do piano lessons um, with a piano teacher. The other extracurricular thing um, that they had is that the company had hired English teachers so they were teaching the children um, how to speak English. And in these English lessons, um, the children, as they before they walked in the door, they needed to decide on an English name. So every time they walk into that English lesson, they need to speak English only and use their English name, which was an interesting idea. Um, The science behind their English lessons were that when you use it in conversational context, it's much easier to pick it up than it is through rote. So um, they used a mixture of conversational and it was only English allowed to be used in that classroom and then also rote relating it back to um, objects and things that the children were, were used to. Um, So, and then there were lots of books, lots of books, lots of reading, lots of reading challenges um, in there as well. And in the preschool group, um, so in their preschool, they actually picked the children up by buses. So they had a, each service had a bus driver who picked the children up um, from their home. They had a backpack, they had a hat and they had this jacket that they wore to and from the service, which was super cute. Um, And they would all walk and they would all get dropped back home, um, which was super, super convenient. They are very government regulated. So I remember um, my client being very stressed about um, submitting all the paperwork to the government, ensuring that it's all correct. Um, So there's certain documents that uh, they actually had to submit to the government every single year. So it was really important for them to make sure that they were dotting their I's, crossing their T's and being really precise um, with their documentation. So um, that wasn't new to them. and But what was new to them is that in Japan, um, this company used to do 12-month contracts. So every single one of their employees were on a 12-month contract At the end of the 12 months, um, they then renegotiated terms um, and then let them know if they were going to get a new contract or not get a new contract. So, as you can imagine, recruiting each year was massive. Um, It was a huge process, um, but a lot of the team members had been with them for quite a long time the only issue they said they found was that, um, in Japan it was typical for, um, once women had had a baby, they did not come back. So they didn't return. They stayed home to look after their child. Um, so that was interesting. And, um, so, some of my most memorable moments from Japan um, were around definitely around the music, the use of the music they had within those classrooms, um, the conversations that we had and the workshops we did with their team. Um, the whole reason that um, my, these Japanese clients wanted to open a service in Australia was that they loved the education, the early education within Australia, that a lot of creativity, a lot of freedom, a lot of imagination and, and um, you know curiosity. So um, they were really interested to learn a lot about our resources and where we get them from and um, a lot about our curriculum. So I remember going out to dinner um, with their team members. It was beautiful. We went to um, Korean barbecue and the food was so good. Um, And I remember us just having these conversations and a lot of the conversations needed to be translated. Um, So it was so funny. Like I'm I like humor and I like to incorporate humor within conversations and it's the funniest thing if you haven't been in this situation before when you're having a conversation and you say something that you think is funny and then it gets translated into another language and then they don't think that it's funny or that they laugh like five minutes after you've said what you've said like after the translation it's 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 actually funny it's really funny um But I remember sharing our concepts, you know, around loose parts, um, you know, schematic play around child initiated curriculum and how the child was at the centre using natural resources. Um, And these concepts were foreign and they were just engaged and they loved and they wanted to know more and more about, um, you know, the Australian curriculum and how we did things. So, it was really fascinating to share to share that with them, and I'm a really huggy person. Like I'm a really affectionate, and huggy person. So if you see me in person, I'm fine. You can hug me. That's fine. Um, but in Japan, it was really interesting to observe that their greeting. So we all met for dinner. We come. We met for dinner, and of course, um, they bow. To each other, there's no physical contact. So um after a while um with my clients when we came back to Australia, we sort of merged in and they got more comfortable with the physical contact. Um but yeah, it was just so fascinating to observe um, you know, their the way they respect each so much respect, so much respect, especially for the elders. Um, and you know, when a person leaves a room, you don't turn it. you you do you um back out of the room, you don't turn around because it's rude to turn your back on them. The other fascinating thing that I got from my visit and the Japanese culture were one, I mastered the use of chopsticks before I went there. So can I say how impressed they were with my with my use of chopsticks? Um, but the other thing is that which I think we can all take a little bit from them, is that during meal times they actually sit and they eat. All devices are off the table. They don't work. They don't talk about work. Um, they legitimately sit there and they enjoy the food. And and eating is such um, a beautiful experience. And I think when you actually sit and you eat and you take give yourself the time and the space your senses come alive and, you know, you you taste so many more things, you smell so many more beautiful aromas. Um, So that's definitely something that I've taken um, from their culture around eating that they actually do stop to eat. There is no such thing there as having a snack like on the road. Like, you know, how we grab, I don't know what we grab, like a banana, an apple, a muesli bar, a chocolate, whatever you're going to grab and you eat it on the go. No, there is none of that in Japan. Anytime they eat, it is for the purpose of sitting down and eating. So that was a really big thing, um, that I took as well. And yeah, the other thing it's, it's not as insightful as, um, <laughs> the eating thing, but, I remember arriving to Tokyo airport and I was busting to go to the toilet. So you line up and you go to the toilet. Now the toilets in Japan are next level. If you've been to Japan, I'm sure in China like they're quite similar. If you've ever been and you've seen the toilets, you know what I am talking about. Now, on the side of the toilet, there is like oh, I don't I'm not even exaggerating, like 10 different buttons. And there's this button that said flush. But it had, so I went to the bathroom, I'm, I'm on the toilet, whatever, I finish and I'm like, okay, I got to flush the toilet. So I'm looking at all these buttons and I'm like, oh my gosh, which button do I push? So as I said, there was this button, it said flush. So I push it and it doesn't flush. Nothing happens except the sound of flushing. So I don't, I have, I have no explanation for you as to why it was the sound of flushing and not actually flushing, but I could not for the life of me. And I felt so bad thinking about all these people outside lining up. And I had two options here, people. I had one, I could leave it in the toilet and go, or two, I could walk out there and ask somebody how do I flush the toilet? And I thought, oh my gosh, I couldn't imagine anything worse than someone walking in and they're being like, you know, number one in the toilet. Um, so I, w- I walked out of the um, cubicle and I'm like, how do I flush the toilet? Again, people, no one spoke English. So here I am being like, pushing down, like flush. How do I flush? And so this beautiful lady comes in and she shows me how to flush the toilet. Um, now, just for you, if you ever travel there next time, the flush button is actually on the top of the, or on the side of the toilet, the other side or up on the top bit. It is not where the buttons are for your beautiful toilet music, for your beautiful flush noise, for your beautiful water bidet to clean yourself. Um, it is not there. <laughs> it is up on the top of the toilet. So, um, but on toilets, in the centres, they actually had these toilets, the same ones, but they were different sizes for different age children. How cool is that? Now, we did look at when we designed their centre um, in Australia to put them in, but unfortunately, they're not certified um, to Australian code but they were beautiful, they were adorable. And um, I'm so blessed that I got to experience the culture. I am just such a curious person. I love learning about different cultures. I love learning about different people. I love learning about different stories and how people work. Um, And I'm so blessed and grateful that I got the opportunity to go and experience the amazing culture of Japan. It'll forever be in my memory and it's one of the amazing experiences that I have had in my career and I wanted to share it with you all. So, Reach out to me if you have any questions, um, anything that you would like us to talk about. I hope you enjoyed today's fun, fun episode all about Japan and the early education in Japan. And I look forward to sharing with you moments from other countries and um, other exciting early childhood adventures. So until next time, everyone, I hope you are well. Have a fantastic day wherever you are, whatever you're doing. And of course, make sure you make every moment count thanks for listening to the everything early childhood podcast if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast please share it with others post about it on social media or leave a rating and review we read them all. To catch all the latest from me, your host, Lisa Brown, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Lisa Brown underscore platinum ed. Thanks again for listening. Keep making every moment count, and I'll see you next time.